2: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, Danny Abdel-Jabbar. Danny, you have a Britney update, don't you?
1: Yeah, man. I'm glad that you uh, pointed that out. Welcome uh, so to
2: Britney Watch.
1: This is Britney. This is Britney Watch. Um, no, no, uh, everybody. Uh, I'm very um, proud to announce uh, that uh, Jamie Spears or James Spears... The father who's been the conservator of Britney Spears for the last 13 years is finally stepping down, which is awesome. Huge, huge major victory. Um, By the way, uh, I was reading an article on Variety.com. Don't go to Variety.com. It literally made me wait 15 seconds before it goes to the article, and it just showed me the shittiest ad. It was just like big blank white page and a little tiny like – tiny tiny little ad and i'm like i have to stare at this one tiny little ad for 15 seconds fuck you variety anyway back to the the point um you know she she's uh finally i think you know you know her her way this is really really awesome um the fact that he's leaving i mean he was you know by britney's own admission the the reason why she doesn't want to be in a conservatorship? Like maybe she'd still be in it if uh, you know he wasn't the conservator. Um, but good for her, you know. Congratulations. I don't know if we know any information about who might take over the conservatorship because that's not over yet. Um, but obviously, you know, her legal team is going to push to end it at this point. Um, so the cards are falling. You know, it's it's you know it's kind of like you know the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan. It's only a matter of time before. You know, <laughs> before somebody else takes over.
2: So, what if she does? Yeah. Like, she like uh like murder somebody afterwards.
1: Well, I mean, really I don't think that crazy. has anything to do with the conservative. What if?
2: <laughs> what if we? I don't think that has anything like, to do with. I the don't. Conservative. I'm joking. I know that doesn't have. That has, no,
1: no, I know. I'm 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 also kind of playing along with this though. Uh, if she does go and murder someone, that's just because she murdered somebody. At, <laughs> And I think the prime target would probably be her father. Yeah, it's not um, like the it's
2: not like the conservatorship. It prevents her from murdering people, right? Exactly.
1: So she she can murder somebody if she wants to murder someone. Um, so should have had that conservatorship. Those two things wouldn't be related. It just controls her yeah. money and like prevents.
2: Well, exactly, it's Weird stuff though too. Like her relation, her personal relationships are affected by that, right? Like she can't marry someone or. She can't For sure. people, and she,
1: she does have some like restricted access to like you know move movement like free movement and shit like that. But generally speaking, like she can still move around on her own, you know. Um. So th- you know, there's nothing stopping her from like murdering. <laughs> okay, know, that's good. Murdering someone, like, it, she could she could do that if she wanted to. The conservatorship isn't preventing her from doing such. That would be, but it. that would be a wild turn of events. I hope it do- doesn't happen. Obviously, um, but. Talk about wild, right? That, that would be like 10 steps backwards. That
2: would be a, a very, very, uh, an M. Night Shyamalan twist. Or, mm, no, I know it, not it a would be like twist. that, yeah. It mm-hmm. would be a very, uh, a climax to the story, right? Like she comes, you know, to her father's bedside and starts, you know, burns him alive in it, it. <laughs> lights a fire, the bed and burn. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Let's, yeah. let's talk about inflation. <laughs> all right, <laughs> good segue, right? So um, yeah. <laughs> all right, so inflation to me is you you're a Game of Thrones fan, so you'll get this and I'm assuming 50% of the people who listen to this are at least familiar with Game of Thrones or have watched some episodes. But you know how um, in the earlier seasons and the later seasons as well, you'll have episodes where, where there's all this political squabbling and right. all these power politics going on. And then, meanwhile, uh-huh. it will cut to the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you know you'll see the White Walkers are gaining power, and they're about to approach the Wall, and you know all is doomed. Right. That is how I feel about hyperinflation—this looming dark cloud over society—and who knows when it could happen, or who like it's almost like we're bound to hit that at some point. The way that our monetary system, um, is conducted. I mean, how do you feel? Do you, do you have that same? Yeah. I I, could,
1: I could see what you're saying. You know, like we go from, from the beginning of, um, the beginning of, uh, the series and there's like two white walkers and then, you know, skip forward seven seasons and now there's like millions of them. Right. So in that way they're kind of hyperinflating on their own. Um, but also the, you know, your comparison I think is pretty astute in the sense that, um, everybody's like bitching and moaning about, you know, who gets the throne when no one's paying attention to the fact that there's a bunch of like like murderous zombie ice people that are going to come and kill you. Uh aka the so central bank it's, being it's, the ice people. <laughs> murderous zombie ice people, the central bank. Yeah. No, it's and it's not the central bank, it's it's the it's the inflation that kills you, right? The central bank is kind of like uh let me try and see if I can draw um the central bank is like the, the, the night King. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They're the ones that create the white Walker. Exactly. Right? And so the central banks are the, is the one that creates, you know, hyperinflation.
2: Yeah. Right? The night King is the chairman of the federal reserve. Um, so <laughs> earlier in the month, there was a poll conducted by the Hill that found that 31% of voters named inflation as what concerns the most about the economy. And, um, you know, there's a really good article from WolfStreet.com that tracks the current inflation right now. So mm-hmm. the Consumer Price Index rose 0.9% in June and 5.4% over the past 12 months, um, the largest jump for each since mid-2008, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics today. All right. What the hell?
1: What does that even mean?
2: So, the CPI measures the loss of purchasing power, thus the purchasing power of labor. So, the loss of purchasing power is increasing.
1: Oh, so like the value of your money. The value of your money
2: is decreasing. You know, prices are going up. Mm. Um, But, Mm -hmm. so, rent of primary residence went up by 1.9% over the year. Uh, the cost of home ownership, mm-hmm. so the amount of— rent,
1: rent is too damn high, right? <laughs>
2: well, the rent, <laughs> rent is going up. I mean, outside of New York City and in, in major cities where people fled, um, other cities are having increases in rent. Like, smaller cities mm-hmm. are having—their um, lar- rent's increasing because of the exodus from really large urban areas. Um, but right, th- the cost of home ownership, so the amount of rent that would have to be paid in order to— Uh, substitute a currently owned house as a rental property that rose by 2.4 percent over the year Um, energy costs spiked by 23.8 percent over the year Um, durable goods Mm -hmm. inflation spiked by 14.3 percent new vehicles have spiked by 6.4 percent and then restaurant prices have jumped by uh, 4.6 percent the most since 2009 and i think with restaurants, that's just the beginning. I think restaurant prices are really going to jump pretty soon uh, just because of all the costs that restaurants are, um, you know, they, they have to kind of absorb right now. They're eventually going to have to pass that on to the consumer um, or the, you know, the, mm. the patron, you know, with just the operating costs and all the COVID stuff and, you know, um, just the price of their food, food. you know, their mm-hmm. uh, ingredients mm-hmm. are going up. So, um, right. I think it would it would do us good to look at some examples of inflation in the most extreme form. Um, you know we're we're told being told right now that the current inflation is, is uh, transitory meaning temporary but it certainly seems like it's going to be permanent. Um but let's talk, let's talk about the most famous example and i think this is probably the most famous example of hyperinflation ever which yeah. is post world war 1 germany uh the weimar republic mm-hmm. i think is probably the most uh famous uh, notorious case of hyperinflation throughout human history along with zimbabwes and um
1: you know it's something i think that we should i think it's it's probably still worse than like places like zimbabwe to be honest yeah, well, I, think it's, I think it's still worse. Well, well let's jump into it. And
2: um, I'm just going to lay out kind of like the basic background of this. Is an, In 1913, before World War One broke out, total currency in Germany amounted to 6 billion marks. So the mark was the gold standard-based currency of the German Empire. Fast forward, mm-hmm. November 1923 in Berlin, a loaf of bread cost 428 billion marks.
1: <laughs> Fucking wheelbarrows of money. Wheelbarrows of money. <laughs> That's so much money. 400 Say that again mar- four hundred and twenty-eight
2: billion marks. Four hundred and twenty-eight red. billion marks. Uh like um, you know the prices were crazy. So the Reichsbank had issued four hundred and ninety six point five quintillion marks each of which had fallen to one trillionth of its 1914 gold value. So practically every economic good and service was costing trillions of marks. The American dollar was quoted at 4.2 trillion marks and the American penny at 42 billion marks. You know, you studied um, the German language as well as German history in school, so... Mm-hmm. You know, talk about right. the imagery of, you know, the Weimar Republic during, you know, the ninth, early 1920s, during this hyperinflationary period.
1: I mean, it wasn't great. Um, I, I think that during the inflation period, right? Uh, like up to the wheelbarrows there, and, you know, the women. Yeah, it it was fucking bad, right? Um, there, there was a lot of, I think the best way to talk about it is to talk about it through art. Um, because I think it was really, really reflected, um, kind of the zeitgeist at the time, uh, to borrow a German phrase there. There were painters and artists that were depicting life in Weimar Republic as utterly dismal. Um, one of my favorites, and I'm trying to pull it up, Henry. You can you can look at this too. Uh, Otto Dix, uh, he was a painter, uh, and he did. Um, we did a particular um, painting. Yeah, it's called the Scat Players. If you want to Google that, um, that one's pretty crazy. Um, and so, the Scat Players is a is a painting by Otto Dix, and it it depicts. I, I might have talked about this on the show a long time ago, but it depicts three um, uh, World War One veterans uh, at a table playing cards. Uh, and, you know, just by saying it that way is, is, kind of an understatement. Um, they are horribly mutilated, uh, and they're, you know, they have a number of prosthesis. Uh, I think when we talked about, uh, World War I, uh, we talked about kind of the increase in medical technology, which, you know, kept people alive even after they had been maimed. Uh, so like this one guy's holding up his cards with his feet, you know, another guy's like missing the bottom part of his like jaw, Uh, you know, another guy's got like crazy looking glass eye and like some, he's holding the cards with his mouth. It's kind of a gruesome picture, but they're kind of just, you know, sitting along uh, around the table, getting along. And I think what this painting really kind of symbolized, uh, is kind of the, you know, gruesome picture of, you know, the post-war, uh, German society. It was, it was, you know, it was maimed, but it was still trying to get along. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's probably a good picture of it, right? During the hyperinflation period, you know, we have abject poverty, abject homelessness, abject uh, unemployment—just just terrible situation. But you know, uh, either through pure will or you know, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. The you know the German people kept chugging along, you know, and and doing their thing, but it wasn't easy, uh, and it was. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible time to live. I mean, again, when you had all any any amount of money, and suddenly your let's say you had, you know, you're very well to do, and you had a million marks in the beginning of you know at the end of the world, uh, the first World War, and then inflation happens. A million marks doesn't mean shit when you need 428 billion of them to buy a loaf of bread.
2: They had to go I to just a barter system. Like let that sit system. in for a moment. A barter system.
1: Exactly. And they were trading interesting shit, too. Um, they were trading like fucking eggs. They were using eggs as currency. Eggs. <laughs> like they break and they go bad and shit, but like eggs was a very valuable commodity.
2: The egg would outlast um, the hype, the inflation.
1: Right, of course, because the value of an egg is an egg. Yeah, the value right. of an egg. And Even it always if it goes bad be, in right? a
2: week or two weeks or whatever. I don't know how um right. long eggs typically last what like 2 3 weeks.
1: I don't know. I eat them too I eat them too fast. <laughs> now how long um, they last.
2: It's interesting like other stories you hear about like factory workers um you know when they're paid they'd have to give their money to their wives and their their wives would have to go to the factory and then go to, right to the store as soon as you know the the, the worker as soon received as they get the money because the prices would be changing mm-hmm. so quickly. So you know, right? You couldn't, mm-hmm. you couldn't like hold on to it because by the time you know you brought the money back home, the price would would already change. So it was that type of environment.
1: Yeah, it was nuts, absolutely nuts. But I, I think you know, to talk about this particular you know time in German history, uh, the Weimar Republic, you you have to you know, like set up you know what happened in World War One because it wasn't just like they you know flipped a switch immediately and then suddenly it was crazy. You know, there's a lot of things that happened along the way. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that.
2: So before the war, before World War One, you know, as the war was about to break out, the German Empire was betting on getting a quick KO on France, given that they had embarrassed them in the Franco-Prussian War about 40 years prior. So the government... Um, thought they were gonna be able to finance the war by issuing bonds. And then they were gonna have the French, once defeated, redeem those bonds in gold. And it's important to note, um, the Germans did not impose an income tax to finance this war. Therefore, the war was financed by, completely by issuing debt. And since Mm -hmm. taxes are always unpopular, the German government preferred to borrow the needed amounts of money rather than raise taxes. So gold redemption, it was suspended. And these newly created loan banks were allowed to simply just create money. So basically, um, limitless fiat money was created by having the the Reichsbank accept government security as security for loans to the government. You know, what we call quantitative easing today. And, you know, quantitative easing is, is, is when the central bank you know, purchases, longer-term securities from the open market in order to increase the money supply. In short, it just means creating money out of nothing. And I guess at the time, you know, German government bills were so well regarded that they were considered risk-free. Well, that's not the way things turned out. Because (laughs) by the end of the war, you know, the amount of money in circulation in Germany had risen fourfold. And prices went right. up about a hundred and forty percent. So the right yeah. debt. So,
1: so that 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 inflation had already started towards the end of the war, right? It wasn't like it just suddenly happened right after the war. Obviously, it exacerbated, but it was already in play. The inflation the white walkers were growing.
2: <laughs> yeah, the inflation had already started because of the the, the monetary policies during World War One. So it didn't just happen mm-hmm. after the war. Um, it happened due to, you know, their central bank during the war to finance the war because, you know, they weren't going to raise taxes. You know, morale was already really low in Germany. You know, people were starving. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the their blockades. It was bad. It was, it was awful. So, I mean, the last thing they were going to do was raise taxes. So they financed the war by debt. Um, and that's why there was a huge, um, you know, price increase, 140%. By the end of the war but you know that's child's play to what happens you know a couple of years later um but i think it's important to note every major powers currency was suffering at the time i think the german Mm -hmm. mark was around the same as the pound i think it was even stronger than the franc, and um you know the dollar was it was doing pretty well
1: against the dollar it was doing pretty well against the dollar though i think it was like one to four or something like that
2: yeah, it was like one to four with a dollar, but it, you know, they all all the mm-hmm. major powers' currencies were suffering. Um, what Germany also had to deal was deal with was losing the being the loser of the war. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, the, or the official loser that is the, the official loser war.
2: of the war. The the Treaty mm-hmm. of Versailles, you know, for those not familiar, um, the entire war was blamed on Germany. You know, they were stripped of their colonies. Um, you know, the French straight up uh, annexed, Alsace-Lorraine. Um, and Germany was requri- required to pay for all the damages caused by the war in the form of reparations. You know, France, in particular, demanded very heavy reparations because they were embittered by the amount of human life lost. Over right. 1.3 million French soldiers were killed during the war, which is just astonishing.
1: That's, a, that's an insane amount of people.
2: I think about a million German soldiers were killed. I think 1.3 million French soldiers were killed. I'm not sure how many British soldiers were killed. I know it's very high. Um, you know, 100,000 American soldiers were killed. 500,000 or so Italian soldiers were killed. Um, I'm not sure what the number is in the Austro-Hungarian Empire is, but I know it's high. Um, you know, millions and millions of soldiers. But France and Russia, you know, it took the
1: most— They really got hit. Hit really mm-hmm. hard.
2: I mean, Russia, that's just kind of— for the course when it comes to war they throw men in the meat grinders like no one else but France was doing the same I mean all of them were doing that um but you know the French suffered 400,000 casualties alone in the battle of Verdun
1: yeah nuts which
2: was one of the larger largest battles in the entire war 400,000 casualties so 400,000 People removed from the battlefield, from either dying or, you know, some type of combat action that, uh, you know, took them away from the trenches. But it was brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then France, you know, wanted its payments, but also wanted to keep the German economy weak in order to prevent them from remilitarizing. But in order to get payments, they needed Germany to have a strong economy. So you can kind of see the contradiction there.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg situation yeah. there. Uh,
2: but the fiscal situation was really bad at the end of the war. So before the war actually ends, and and you're, I know you're familiar with this this part of the history, but you know Kaiser Wilhelm, um, the monarch of Germany, the guy with the gimpy arm, you know, he is <laughs> deposed by a workers' revolution, and then two days later, he's, um, you know, two days after he's deposed. You know, that's when Germany signs, you know, they, they've surrendered. The armed assist is, uh, is signed on uh, November of mm-hmm. November 11th of 1918. And, you know, the political right. party that wins the first election in the new Weimar Republic is the SPD, the, the Social Democratic Party. And what the Weimar Republic becomes is a welfare state.
1: All right. Well, ho- hold on, because because you can't just jump right into that welfare state bit. Because the welfare state is a dirty word. L- let me let me take this part. Um. So, uh, let me let me start by talking generally about some positive and negative points about the Weimar Republic. Just to We're get us, talk like, about for a little this. bit of
2: good about them, a little bit a little bit, little of, bit bad. of good, a little bit of
1: bad. You know. Because uh, because, admittedly, when I was doing the research on this, and, and obviously, uh, as you pointed out, I studied German for a long time, uh, especially in college. And, you know, I went to a very liberal university, so they painted an interesting Rutgers. picture uh, there. <laughs> yeah, I went to Rutgers. Rutgers um, is but, very liberal? Uh, well, uh, the German program in Rutgers is pretty liberal. I can say that. Uh, I guess every with, university uh, is. With absolutely
2: Surprisingly, support. my school was not very liberal. Actually, I don't no. know. I wasn't paying attention to class enough in college to know if they were super liberal or not. I wouldn't even know if I was there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so I didn't notice. I didn't notice when I was in school, but like you know, look in hindsight, I can see. Uh, and, and the reason why is because um, the way, and, and I am definitely like some of my professors, if they're listening, they would probably be very upset with me for saying this. But you know, if I'm to paint with a super broad brush, what I took away from a lot of the classes that you know covered Weimar Republic was you know you had the you know the the uh the, the prussian empire and they sucked right and they're an authoritarian you know dictatorship basically um and then we had this very short-lived republic that was you know it had its problems but you know it it, it was really positive in a lot of you know ways and if they just let it run out then you know it, it probably would have been awesome but then the nazis came and fucked it up right and and that's you know in a nutshell kurz gesagt, as they would say um the the kind of like influence that I that I got uh, learning this but um after approaching it you know kind of with your help uh and looking at you know some of the more uh libertarian uh writings uh reading some stuff that you sent me on Mises um and you know just watching a few videos of, of you know just economics that talked about um the weimar republic it definitely gave me a bit more context so I do want to talk about like positive and negative things here so I, I won't I promise I'll try my best not to Not to be too biased on this one, but let's talk about some good things because I feel like, you know, we started by, you know, saying that, you know, Weimar Republic is the, you know, the shining example of hyperinflation, which is a terrible thing. Um, But there were some really great things uh, about the Weimar Republic, too. So if the things that weren't even available in in most Western countries at the time, so one big one, uh, all men and women over the age of 20 were able to vote. I, I want to point out that women's suffrage, so the ability to vote here in the United States, didn't happen until like the '50s, right? So this was huge, uh, huge, huge, huge. Very, very woke. Um, German citizens uh, were guaranteed freedom of speech and religion, which I guess is kind of par for the course for you know, like a democracy. But but still, you know, that wasn't a thing in 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 the uh, you know the Prussian Empire. Uh, all German citizens were, were meant to be equal. I, I, I say meant to be equal because I don't, I think in practice, you know, equality is a, is something that you have to work for. It's not something that you sign into a document and just immediately a thing. Um, German citizens uh, would elect the president, so they had free and fair elections. Um, and then the, the Reichstag, uh, which is the, what they call the parliament there, um, so they they were able to you know select their leaders so to speak. Well, actually, technically they were they were voting for parties, and that's how they ended up getting it. But still, they would vote directly for the president. Uh, and then the Reichstag uh, made laws, and they appointed the government, and they also appointed the chancellor. And that typically fell in line with how people voted uh, proportionally, because they had a proportional s- uh, system of government, where you know if some party got you know thirty percent of the vote, then they're going to get thirty percent of the representation. And therefore, uh, actually, what ended up happening is there were so many fucking parties that nobody ever got a majority. So what would happen, and this is kind of the positive point out of it, is that those parties would have to cooperate with one another in coalitions. Uh, So on paper, it sounds really great. But in practice, there were some problems there. Uh, So uh, I can talk about the negative aspects of the Weimar Republic. And I'll start with that one. The parliament, as I said, was elected through this system of proportional representation. And so... You know, the German citizens would vote for a party. Let's say they voted for the SDP, uh, uh, SDP, Um, and, um, you know, rather than a specific candidate, like I'm not voting for, you know, fucking AOC, I'm voting for Democrats as an example, right? Um, And what happened is that there was just a ton of these smaller parties uh, and no party ended up getting a majority Uh, So they would form these coalitions, which on paper sounds like a good thing, right? Everybody has to like cooperate with one another. There's no, you know, not like here in the United States today where there's only really two parties that you can choose from and they both suck. You know, it's like you can, you know, they they all have to get along and, and make compromises and things like that. So on paper, it sounds great. But in practice, what happened was a constant stream of disagreements between all of these parties. And we would have like these flip-flop parties where like one party would side with you know would join a coalition with another party for one particular issue and then for five more issues would be totally against them and that would hamper their ability to make deals with one another it was crazy um you so, so, you're saying like so much gridlock, like
2: the the party system created a gridlock system
1: absolutely right and it yeah, sounds like I'd argue me. probably <laughs> I mean, I'd argue is probably worse than our gridlock, you know. And we only have two parties, so imagine like if we had like ten, you know, and none of them can agree on fucking anything. The gridlock, the gridlock, um, the gridlock
2: so it, it, between the two, the Republican and the Democrats, is like the only thing that keeps us from not falling off a cliff. The more set, the more they they uh, cooperate, the more evil the policies they create.
1: Right, but also the, you know when we're talking, we're talking about an extreme you know uh, government here because. It, during this time when they had this gridlock, they're also experiencing hyperinflation and hyper, you know, poverty and hyper everything, right? So you kind of need somebody to do something, right? They can't just be fucking, you know, yelling at each other all the time and not getting anything done, right? Because that's going to cause a lot of civil unrest, right? And there was a lot of civil unrest as a result, right? Nothing was happening. Nothing was getting done in the, in the early part of the Weimar Republic. And, you know... Uh, Oh, I got to talk about this one. There was this article in their constitution called Article Forty Eight, and it stated that. This is creepy because it's it feels like some shit that we've had. Uh, It stated that in an emergency, the president can take control of Germany and issue laws and decrees by executive action, right? And you know, much like you know, say mm, like the War Powers Act or something like that. Here, uh, the uh, the quote emergent the. Emergency wasn't well-defined, right? So obviously it left it, like, wide open for abuse, and, you know, eventually they did start abusing that. Uh, and they kind of had to use this law a lot because of all of the disagreements. Like, nobody was getting anything done. And meanwhile, the German economy is tanking. People are rioting. Like, there's, like, um, there's like separatist movements. There's so much shit was happening that somebody had to do something, and that tended to be the president um, who would... Invoke Article 48 and like say nope we're gonna do this, and sometimes it was good, but most of the time it was bad, uh, because obviously it, it would allow for dictatorships to develop. And you know, flash forward, spoiler alert, guess who ends up being the chancellor uh, and eventually also the president, who then named himself the Fearer and used Angela exact, Merkel. Uh, <laughs> no, which by the way, uh, um, actually you know they're they're. Um, they're voting next month um pretty concerned uh, you know m- m- hater or lover merkel has been a center point uh for uh europe for a while i have a i have a real very interesting
2: um, i have a real right-wing friend like a real like right mm-hmm. like a right-wing friend and he uh he he's been t- he says that angela merkel is the reincarnation of hitler
0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the
1: experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: You call it the reading card issue of <laughs> Hitler, and that's her ultimate goal. No, very she's funny. not.
1: No, not even close.
2: <laughs> I think <laughs> um, very all right, it's like- so she's, she's Hitler, I'm telling you. She's a reincarnation of Hitler. Like <laughs> we, all right. Like can we can we make go, can we make like a concerted sense. like she wants to bring like all these all ask. these Arabs in and she wants to use them to create. Like, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about?
1: None of that makes sense. Can, can we also make a concerted effort to please ask you know everyone to stop using Hitler? Like he's Hitler or she's Hitler or that's Hitler. No, no, no. He like, wasn't just saying that she's it?
2: like Hitler. <laughs> he was saying he said that, that he, she is the reincarnation
1: Hitler. of Hitler. Like she is Hitler. <laughs> That's like nonsense. Hitler. That is fucking nonsense. Oh, um, <laughs> right, uh, I don't, think it's funny. I, I'd prefer that she say that she was a lizard person because I like, I'd buy that more than I buy. <laughs> she's the reincarnation of Hitler. 100%. Um, all right. So I talked about, uh, good things and bad things, you know, real you know, cursory stuff. Um, so when I was doing the research here and, and Henry thank you so much for sending over you know so many really awesome uh, um kind of economically leaning uh like reviews of the Weimar Republic because you know it definitely helped me to you know to understand it, the there was a lot of problems in the Weimar Republic but definitely inflation was this big beast that um it, it was such a s- extreme focus um, and it and it detracted so much, and it and it made it, it made the people lose confidence in this new government in the post uh, war period. Uh, it, so it, it was interesting to read this from a libertarian perspective. Um, I ended up taking away a lot of things and, and agreeing with a, a, a lot of um, you know the logic, especially around you know how uh, uh, government intervention. Uh, in the economic system, you know, causes more harm than good. Uh, And when reviewing it from the lens of, you know, the late World War One period and the early Weimar Republic period, I totally agree. One of the big debates on this
2: subject is, you know, did the welfare program cause the hyperinflation or was the Treaty of Versailles the primary reason that caused it? And I'm not really qualified to answer that question, but you know, I see, I see both cases. Um, so I want to read this and this is uh, from the book, the age of inflation It's by an Austrian e- uh, economist, Hans Sinholz. Throughout the period of the inflation, the most popular explanation of the monetary depreciation laid the blame on unfavorable balance of payments which in turn was blamed on the payment of reparation and other burdens imposed by the Treaty of Versailles. To most German writers and politicians, the government deficits and the paper inflation were not the causes but the consequences of the external appreciation of the mark. The wide popularity of this explanation, which charged the victorious allies with full responsibility for the German disaster bore ominous implications for the future. Its simplicity Mm -hmm. made it appealing to the masses of 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 economically ignorant people whose chauvinism and nationalism always make the idea of foreign intrigue and conspiracy so palatable. The intellectual and political leaders who actively propagated the doctrine were sowing the seeds of further whirlwind they reaped a decade later. During those Mm baleful years... Germany actually procured graciously from abroad large quantities of raw materials and foodstuffs. According to various authoritative estimates, foreign individuals and banks bought at least 60 billion paper marks, which the Reichsbank had floated abroad at an average price of one-fourth gold mark for a paper mark. The the, the, the depreciation of the mark to one trillionth of its earlier value repudiated, repudiated these foreign claims to German goods. Thus, Foreigners suffered losses of 15 billion gold marks or some 3.5 billion U.S. dollars, which was eight times more than Germany had paid in foreign exchange on account of reparations. But even if it had had been true that excessive burdens had been thrust on Germany by the Allies, there is no need for any monetary depreciation. Both phenomena are entirely independent. If excessive burdens mm. are placed on a government, whether they be foreign or domestic, that government must raise taxes or borrow some funds or cur- or, cur- or curtail other expenditures. Excessive reparation payments make nece- may necessi- necessitate greater higher taxes on the populace or large loans that reduce the supply of savings for industry and commerce or painful cuts in government service and employment. The standards of living of the people thus burdened will probably be depressed unless the reduction of bureaucracy should release new productive energy. But the value of money is not affected by the reparation burden unless economic productivity is impaired by the fundraising. Once government has achieved the necessary budgetary surplus, the payment of reparation is simple as a simple matter of exchange. The Treasury buys the necessary gold or foreign exchange from a central bank and delivers it to the recipient government. The loss of gold or foreign exchange then necessitates a corresponding reduction of central bank money, which in turn tends to depress goods prices. Lower goods prices encourage more exports while, exports while they discourage imports. That is, That is, generate what is commonly called a favorable balance of payments. Or new influx of gold and foreign exchange. In short, there could be no shortage of gold or foreign exchange as long as the central bank refrains from inflation and monetary depreciation. The German monetary authorities flatly denied this economic reasoning. Instead, they preferred to lament about the excessive burdens thrust onto Germany and the unfavorable balance of payments generated thereby. In 1923, they added yet another factor the French occupation of the Rohr district. So I want to stop right there.
1: Let's and talk about that for a second.
2: I want to talk about the, the French occupation of the Roar because this is one of the big rallying calls of a lot of German writers. Um, you know, the annex of territory, the annexation of territory in Germany was, you know, uh, to me, one of the primary causes why there was this really strong national fervor that led to... Uh, someone like adolf hitler being elected so um let's talk about this occupation so um, in may 1921 the allies demanded germany transfer four billion marks annually and they had to make additional payments as their economy grew and these demands amounted to be about half of the total german tax revenue And if they didn't comply or the conditions were not met the Allies threatened to occupy the Roar Valley. And the Roar Valley was a very heavily industrial industrialized part of Western Germany. So the Allies, mm-hmm. the Allied governments, they imposed, uh, you know, high duties on its exports, making it hard for Germany to run surplus on external trade. But since the Reichstag mm-hmm. refused to hike taxes, and, you know, they uh, didn't do this by the determined date, you know, the Allies, uh, they annexed up. Uh, upper Silesia, in Poland to and this is what one of those places that was like half German half Polish it was like I think it probably was more Polish right. than German it was like 60 percent Polish 40 percent German but you know they and you know that's where you get Germans living outside of the borders you know and as protests these ter- stiff terms Germany suspended all the payments um, in June of 1922 and by early 1923 it failed to, del- to make deliveries of coal as payments so in January nineteen, right? Because they were able to
1: they were able to give raw goods as well as money uh, yeah. for the reparations, right? Like yeah, they, they took the value of those things as well.
2: Well, what happens is that um, in response for Germany missing those rural those uh, those coal payments, F- France and Belgium occupy the Roar. and you get like a lot of weird, right. you know, a lot of interesting uh, pictures from this period as well. You know, there's a picture of like a black African soldier. Um, Confronting a German citizen. I don't know if you ever seen that picture. You know, he's a, no, I don't some, think a I soldier have, no. from the colony. Mm. I'm not sure where he's where where he's from, but he's a soldier from you know either a Belgium or a French colony. And you know, it's like one of those, it's one of those pictures. Are like, oh, this is why the Germans became so racist. I don't think I think it's a lot mm-hmm. more complex than that. But it's you know, it's a famous picture. If you look it up, Google it; it's interesting. Um, but the protest to these stiff terms was that um, the German workers, I guess they passively resisted this. They went on strike to prevent France from essentially looting the region's coal and steel reserves. And um, you know, mm-hmm. without coal, German railroads couldn't really couldn't run, and uh, without without uh railroads the german economy could couldn't run so they had to start importing coal that's right so um right after the government deficit widened the the money stock soared and um you know they go to go back to the, you know these political assassination walter walter ratnell who was a foreign minister who was you know he signed papers he basically signed a treaty that Said that gave up Germany's um, occupied land in France, and you know I think there was something around four hundred political assassinations at that time.
1: I mean, there there's so many of them. Um, There there were hundreds of them. Actually, actually, uh, I read an interesting bit um, uh, about kind of the makeup of the political assassinations, and uh, there was this guy uh, E.J. Gumble. Uh, he was a German mathematician and st- statistician. He came from a, a prominent Jewish family in, in Wurttemberg. Um, but uh, that's uh, kind of just some backstory on him. He, he, the important point on here, uh, as far as the political assassinations go, was that his friend um, was the victim of a political murder by a Nazi brown shirt in the early 20s. Um, and, you know, how that story shaked out was that when they went to court, um, and, you know, this, this Nazi was, was put on, on trial. The judge totally ignored the evidence against him. And he was basically just let off, which obviously pissed off this, this guy, you know, EJ, uh, you know, Gumble was obviously mad about it. And he was an intellectual type and a mathematician and a statistician. So he starts documenting a bunch of these political murders and, um, you know, and published what he learned in a book, and the book is called Four Years of Political Murder, and he released that in 1922. Um, But in that book, he he calculated that um, domestic terrorists, just generally speaking, um, committed about 454 political murders in the early years of the Weimar Republic. Um, But one interesting thing that he found was that while judges were very harsh in their treatment of, um, a small number of, uh, left wing. And by the way, when I say left wing here, I mean their left wing, like, like communists, um, uh, assailants, uh, in these terrorist attacks, the same, the same judges w- were kind of sympathetic for right wing terrorist, uh, violence. And again, I don't mean like our right wing, I mean like Nazis, um, it might be the same thing (laughs) um anyway uh so this book and this like information ended up getting him on the nazi shit list when they took power (laughs) so he ended up making his way to the u.s and uh ended up teaching in Colombia. but what was interesting about that was that there was a a, a very broad you know uh political climate um of (laughs) assassinations from both radical sides um but because a lot of these judges were, you know, holdovers from the the Prussian uh, Empire, they were more, mm, I want to say conservative, I want to say they were more right, right-wing, right more right-leaning, and so they were more uh, apt to uh, follow up with left-wing terrorism than they were with right-wing terrorism, and, and what that causes is a bit of an imbalance, right? So you know uh both radical left and radical right wing parties were trying were vying for uh political capital in the early Weimar period um but the communists basically didn't get a chance right um because the you know their ex- their extremist means were curtailed because you know if they did something crazy like a political assassination they're going to be you know they're going to be put to death in many cases however you know a right wing extremist doing the same political assassination committing the same crime was less likely to die. So it kind of emboldened the right um, wing uh, on here and and it was just like this crazy imbalance in the uh, left wing versus right wing um, uh, uh, jurisprudence um, which is which is at least part of why uh, you know the Nazis were able to take power because you know, they didn't see the same types of repercussions as the— It very well could—if it was the opposite, you know, we might have seen instead of, um, you know, Hitler, we might have seen a, a communist revolution in, in Germany.
2: And, um, I mean, that is justification for the what people use for the welfare state there because the, Germany, mm-hmm. the Germans wanted to avoid a Bolshevik revolution. So— they mm-hmm. thought that if they didn't you know subsidize you know these labor unions or give special privileges to these labor unions, or, then the
1: communists would right
2: then or you know um there was a lot of benefits that they gave as far as uh health care benefits eight hour work days, things like that, you know um right. things that labor unions mm-hmm. are fighting for um
1: we'll talk we'll talk more about that for sure yeah
2: we'll we'll talk about that, but if they did not give those. If they did not give those, uh, those benefits, then that would lead to an actual revolution. That would lead to a Bolshevik revolution. But what do right. these political murders result in? Is They, they result in political turmoil, and um, political turmoil causes a large-scale exodus of financial assets and capital which in Germany's case made its domestic price increases go from bad to insane, you know, Germany entered Mm -hmm. into a full scale liquidity crisis at that time in 1922, 1923. Um, You know, all that being said though, I think the hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic is because of the German central banks or a German central bank. So I, I have another quote for you. Um, from a German economist, uh, Thorsten Pole. He says, and this leads into um, you know how the hyperinflation was eventually ended. From April 1920 to March 1921, the ratio of tax revenues to spending amounted to just 37%. Thereafter, the situation improved somewhat in June 1922. Tax relative to total spending even reached 75%. Then things turned ugly. Toward the end of 1922, Germany was accused of having failed to deliver its reparation payments on time. To back their claim, French and Belgian troops invaded and occupied the Ruhr, the Reich's industrial heartland, at the beginning of January 1923. The German government, under Chancellor Wilhelm Cuno, called upon Ruhr workers to resist any orders from the invaders, promising the Reich would keep paying their wages. The Reichsbank began printing up new money by monetizing debt to keep the government liquid for making up tax shortfalls and paying wages, social transfers, and subsidies. For May 1923, on the quantity of the paper mark started spinning out of control. It rose from $8.61 billion in May to $17.34 billion in April, and further to... Uh, Six hundred sixty-nine billion in August, reaching four hundred quintillion in November of nineteen twenty-three. Um, wholesale prices skyrocketed to astronomical levels, rising by a thousand eight hundred thirteen percent from the end of nineteen nineteen to November nineteen twenty-three. At the end of World War One in nineteen eighteen, you could have bought five hundred billion eggs for the same money you would have to spend five years later for just one egg through November 500 billion eggs 500 billion eggs that's a lot of eggs. Um, <laughs> through November 1923 the price of the US dollar in terms of paper market had risen by 8.9%. The paper market had actually sunken to scrap value.
1: Well maybe now's the time uh, a good time for me to jump back to what I was talking about before uh, about how the inflation ended and just to kind of bring us back to what I was talking about before we were um, discussing this guy. This nice chap Stresemann uh, and how he kind of came into power uh, in '24 um, and the 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 first big thing that Stresemann had to do was to tackle you know the problem of inflation right so obviously nobody does this alone right so we give him credit but we also want to talk about some other people too so there's you know, him and his finance minister Hans Luther. Uh, they basically get together and they start making this plan to stop the bleeding. Uh, and how they do this is by introducing a new type of currency uh, that's called the Renton Mark, right? Now, unlike the old mark, right, the Papier Mark or the Paper Marks, uh, the value of the Renton Mark was going to be fixed to gold prices, right? So, you know, libertarians dream here. Uh, and the Renton Mark actually was a intermediary um, uh, um, Uh, an intermediary currency. They were eventually going to kind of switch over to the Reichsmark afterwards, um, which was also going to be on the gold standard. Uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself though. But the the point though, is that they went from this ridiculous print a bunch of money that's worth basically nothing to, all right, let's switch to this thing that has like, it's backed by uh, by a physical commodity, gold in this case. And what they were doing was inviting... A bunch of people to come in and trade their old marks for new marks right so wheelbill wheelbarrows full of them um but it actually started to work uh in this case uh and inflation started slowing drastically because you know these new marks as expected uh were not just like hey let's just print a bunch of money <laughs> you know because that was the whole problem in the first place they just kept printing more money um so when they switched over to something that actually had a value uh, prices started stabilizing. You know, obviously you'd get like, a, I, don't, I don't remember the exact exchanges, but something extreme, like, you know, a trillion marks of the old marks would be like one regular rent mark. So it was something like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, people didn't have to <laughs> take like a whole fucking dump truck full of money to, to go grocery shopping. So that was really good. Um, and th- at that moment, we really start seeing a Kind of decline in the in in this uh, um, kind of negative period of the Weimar Republic, which is which is where we start the golden age. Uh, And and to be clear, the golden age wasn't gold for everybody, and we'll I want to talk about that for sure. Um, But you know, the golden age was a pretty big deal for a lot of people, and definitely for the economy. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, So there was the problem of hyperinflation, and we talked about that, and. I've already forgotten the name of the guy that you quoted was also talking about how uh, the you know the reparation problem and the inflation problem weren't you know in unison right so they weren't connected they were two separate things right and I totally agree with that um, because they they had to handle both issues separately and individually it's not like oh if I fix the reparation problem it suddenly fixes the you know inflation problem and the reverse isn't true too right so just because they fixed the inflation problem doesn't get rid of this, um, problem with, uh, reparations, right? Uh, so the next thing that he had to tackle was that reparations problem. So, you know, the inflation had temporarily stabilized, but they were still paying out, you know, or at least they were defaulting on, you know, the reparations that were basically killing the economy, um, So first, uh, and this was a very unpopular thing um, among a lot of people, but it helped, um, is that he made commitments uh, to the international community that Germany would make good on their payments. Um, And what this did was it helped to restore kind of foreign relations, right? Uh, But obviously it hurt him politically uh, because those reparations were so bad in, you know, the Germans' eyes. They were like, wait, we're going to go back to fucking paying people again, you know? Uh, and this is, of course, in the shadow of, like, the Ruhr occupation and a bunch of all this other shit where, you know, they're lo- they're losing territory over not paying, and now we're going to pay again? You know, so it wasn't a very popular thing. But he did it anyway. Um, and, you know, th- if I'm not mistaken, actually, I think he, you know, basically used the uh, Article 48 to do that. This is one of those situations where you just kind of took control and did something. Um, but he used that political capital... Um, uh, and at this point, he wasn't the, uh, the president anymore. He only served for 100 days. But he ended up getting appointed as the foreign minister uh, by the next president. And so Stresemann actually ended up working real closely with the U.S. on renegotiating those reparations. And obviously, he wouldn't have been able to do this if not for the, all this political capital that he gained from making those commitments uh, that Germany would continue paying for reparations. So Stresemann and the U.S., they start getting real buddy-buddy. Um, And they created the Dawes plan in 1924. Uh, And this plan was actually pretty good for Germany because it actually put a pause on all of the reparations um, until 1929. Right. So the idea was that Germany was still going to pay the full amount that they were supposed to pay. But uh, the idea was that they just kind of needed some time to get back on their feet. You can think of it like, um, like like you know you get out of school and you have like student debt or something like that. Um, you get like a little six month period or whatever that you don't have to pay. but like if after six months, you still can't pay because you haven't found a job because it's impossible uh, in some cases, <laughs> uh, you can also get like a forbearance, right? And they're basically saying like, hey, you know okay, you don't have to pay right now. you still have to, you still owe everything, but we give you a little bit more time. To get back on your feet, so you can think of it that way, but this massively, massively, massively helped the German uh, government's cash flow problem uh, and its and its reserves of uh, raw materials. Because if you remember, uh, it wasn't just a, a cash that they were giving out; they were also giving out things like coal, right? So now they can use their raw materials to help spur on their own economy, right? So you pointed out that. You know, without coal, the German railroads couldn't run. And without German railroads, the economy basically is off. So now they get, Stresemann works with the U.S. to get the Dawes plan working. Now they don't have to pay anything for a couple of years. And now they can start using that raw materials to start building up their uh, economy. And, you know, using some expertise uh, and some engineering know-how from the United States, they actually start building up their uh, industrial sector uh, quite a lot. Here's where I think Stresemann made a huge mistake. Um, Now, the 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 cash flow and the the reserves were better in Germany, but they the economy still kind of needed a boost, and this is where they turned to the U.S., who happily loaned them a shit ton of money. Uh, I mean people all over the world were loaning the money at the time. You you pointed that out already. Um, But $25 billion in foreign money um, between 1924 and 1929 uh, came into Germany. And more than half of this money came from American loans. Uh, And most of that money was facilitated by bankers um, that were acting as an intermediary between the governments. Um, So we're talking about like central bank loans. Um, And, you know, basically, they were able to use this kind of connected connection and partnership. So now the, the United States is obviously investing in Germany, so they don't want them to fail. Uh, so they also start giving them financial uh, and industrial expertise to help them. Uh, and you know, I think this is a mistake uh, for the reason that you know we really you really shouldn't take on debt um, in order to spur on an economy. And I think this is something that I'm starting to come along around on this, this uh, more libertarian idea. Um, because once they start calling that debt, well then <laughs> you, you basically, you're building your house on, it's like building a house of cards, if you will. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but, uh, the temporary uh, result of this was an economic boom. Uh, so you start seeing new factories being constructed or converted. Um, and a lot of them are using a whole like, shit ton of mechanization and assembly line techniques um you can you can make the argument that this um, economic boom and this know-how uh, really spurred on uh, and gave Germany largely uh, their foundation uh, I mean even today and not long ago Germany was you know out producing fucking China in in terms of uh, manufacturing right uh, much smaller country. Um, and you know a lot of that, a lot of the roots of that, you know, kind of German engineering uh, comes from this, right? Comes from this giant economic boom that happened, you know, during there. But uh, obviously, the, the negative offshoot is this: of this is that uh, the Nazis took advantage of it to to build up their war machine, right? So they were, you know, building up all of these uh, factories and stuff that ended up being converted to like creating fucking leopard tanks and shit.
2: Well, let me um, let me stop you right there. So here's just an antidote. Yeah. But someone was telling me that. They um, were. They used to work in a machine shop and the mm-hmm. owner of the machine shop was a German guy. And he said that every single owner of all these machine shops were all German guys. And they all were just so meticulous and so like experts at their crafts. And he's like, imagine just a whole society of that. Of people like that, and that was that was Nazi mm-hmm. Germany. That's how that's what he explained. Like that's how he, what he was trying to explain to me is like they were just so meticulous, um, like looking at every single detail. Um, so, do you think that?
1: Well, I mean, he's not he's not. I mean, on the face of it, he's no, not wrong he about have to that, that kind yeah. of
2: story, first-hand experience. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's not wrong about that. I think. think oh, that's why. They what's were unfortunate, Panzer tanks. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's unfortunate about that is that that we we you know, that line of argumentation usually starts with saying the Nazis started that. But actually, this started way well before the Nazis took power, right? This ingenuity came out of the golden age in the Weimar Republic. This was something that they co-opted to, to, you know, uh, fuel their war machine, right? Uh, But this was intended and originally developed and successfully deployed for the, you know, uh, for the greater good of the people, right? So for, to, to spur on the economy. Um, and, and, and this was uh, um, pretty great for them. Um, it, then, then what happened was that after a while, uh, they started paying back France and Belgium and, and other people, their restorations early. Um, and this caused uh, France and Belgium to stop their occupation of the Ruhr, uh and pull out in 25. So, Now they have a strong industrial sector that was propped up by American investments with American know-how and techniques. And now they just unlocked one of their most uh, uh, profitable regions for, um, you know, uh, manufacturing, which was the Ruhr, uh, which basically attracted more investment from outside, which, you know, at the time, seemed like a really good idea, uh, but just meant more foreign debt. Um, so, uh, just just to put this into perspective here, at, at this point, Germany's recovery was so rapid that it exceeded the recovery uh, of post World War I uh, of France and Britain. By twenty nine, Germany was producing thirty three percent more than before the war, and Germany had taken the second-highest-producing industrial nation uh, title, second only to the United States.
3: That's how good they were doing in the Weimar Republic. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
2: The question is, what happened?
1: Well, I think uh, I think in order to talk about what happened, we want to talk a little bit about the social programs um, that were established as well, because it wasn't just all economic. Um, the social programs admit, uh, admittedly were good for a lot of people, but were bad for some people. Um, well, not bad. They just weren't as good for other people. And this will become a linchpin um, for its demise, I think. And also on the economic front, there's all that foreign debt that they were taking on. I'm definitely going to talk about that in a second. But let's talk about social programs because these, these are some pretty good things in the golden age. Um, so they had this unemployment insurance law uh, that was passed in 27, um, which basically uh, required workers and their employees to make contributions to you know, an unemployment program. And that was pretty beneficial because at the time, even though they were booming, there was still a whole lot of uh, unemployed, uh, so then that gave them kind of a, a floor um, or uh, to, to stand on, so to speak. So it, it it helped out a lot of people that were out of work. It also didn't help out a lot of people. Uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but a couple of other uh, kind of welfareish stuff that they were doing was they provided uh, benefits and assistance to war veterans, uh, to wives uh, and dependents of the war who died. Um, to single mothers, to the disabled, um, so they're they're really helping out the the you know the folks that were really having some trouble in 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 Germany, uh, which is a very woke thing. Uh, it's very very progressive, very liberal. Um, take it or leave it. It was very good for a lot of people. Um, also, uh, they tried to fix the housing crisis because there was a g- massive housing crisis. They had um, this thing called Article One Fifty Five of the Weimar Constitution, which uh, it reads, it it says that the state must strive to secure healthy housing to all German families, especially those with many children. Um, So this was in their constitution. Um, So they worked on building a shit ton of new homes. So between 24 and 31, they built 2 million new homes uh, and uh, about 200,000 more were either renovated or expanded. So by twenty-eight. Uh, homelessness had been reduced by 60%, more than 60%, actually. Uh, so that's huge. They were, they were tackling homelessness. You know, California can learn a thing or two about that. Um, so at this point, uh, around 24, in 1924, uh, unemployment was about 4%, uh, and, uh, and that was... Uh, after like this giant increase in industry and manufacturing jobs came, um, there was a huge decline in um, in unemployment. So by twenty nine, only one point four million people out of sixty five million people were without a job. So those, those are, you know they did good on the unemployment front by creating new jobs. They also, uh, as I mentioned before, they stabilized the currency, um, that created that industrial boom. Um, but something that was really positive uh, about that stabilization of currency was that the, re- the quote, real value of wages uh, increased. And what I mean by real value of wages, I don't necessarily mean that they got paid more. It means that the buying power uh, of the money that you received was higher. Uh, and that increased by 9% uh, in, 20, in 1928, and it rose to 12% more uh, afterwards. So actually, compared to the rest of Europe, Uh, in terms of buying power, real wages. Uh, Germany's industrial workforce was the best paid in Europe. Uh, So they were, you know, if you were working in a fucking factory, you were doing well for yourself. Uh, And there were so many people that were totally uh, without a job that ended up, you know, going into the industrial workplace. Uh, And they, you know, pulled themselves out of poverty as a result. I also want to talk a little bit about women. Uh, Women dominated the Weimar electorate. Uh, so out of a total population of 60 million Germans, there were 2 million uh, young men and women between the ages of 18 and 34 who died uh, and another um, 2 million uh, that had been so fucked up, like either physically or mentally, that they couldn't really, they, they weren't, it's was like 4 million people that weren't gonna be participating in, in governance. Um, and so- Prior to this, women weren't allowed in any political organizations, uh, you know, in like pre-World War I, but they definitely took up the mantle uh, during the Weimar Republic. And in those years, uh, women voted in huge numbers and and supported like the Weimar Republic, um, because obviously that granted them the ability to vote. So they're, you know, returning the favor, so to speak, but um, unfortunately... Uh, by the end of the Weimar Republic, women started leaving those political parties that were supporting the Weimar Republic, so much so that by, from 1930 to 1932, so this is already in the, you know, late hours of uh, of the Weimar Republic, women were the fastest growing group who supported the Nazi party. Um, See what happened when and, you let women vote? <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> um, oh. I don't like that.
2: It was a great age for women. (laughs) They were the base of Hitler, but um, it was a great age for women's
3: rights.
1: (laughs) I mean, but they were the base. I I think, I think just, just like that's probably, uh, there are more reasons that, that are independent of gender that, um, you know, why people voted uh, and supported the Nazi party. Um, but I want to talk about why, um, because that's kind of important because you asked like what happened, right? Um, so this this what what felt like a fucking miracle uh an economic miracle didn't actually benefit everyone equally and the people who uh were the hardest hit were the middle class so the the middle class in the Weimar republic you know they lost all of their wealth all of their savings basically due to the hyperinflation uh in 1923 so like if you were a regular middle class person and you had some money in the bank you know, hyperinflation basically eviscerated your buying power and it, it was just gone, right? So, you know, those middle class people, you know, I'm talking about like managers, bankers, bureaucrats, you know, clerks, other like white collar professionals. You know, they, they didn't come into this golden age with like, you know, um, with like a leg up. You know, they, they, and they also failed to benefit from a lot of the, the social programs. Um, so a lot of the white-collar uh, workers didn't get um, the same welfare benefits as people that were in the industrial sector. Um, and so while generally I did say that unemployment fell a lot, it actually remained really high uh, among white-collar professionals. I mean, I guess the argument there could be made like, all right, well, why don't you just – get a industrial job then, you know, that's, that's kind of like the, uh, the counter argument there. But, you know, when, when you're, when you've been trained, uh, and you've been working all your life in a white collar job to kind of, um, move to an industrial job, you know, for lack of a better word feels, you know, to you like a regression, even if it's affecting your, your income. Um, but you know, it, it, you know, a lot of these unemployed white collar workers, for one reason or another, didn't actually qualify for those same unemployment benefits that a lot of other people were getting. You know, so they were pretty sour about that, admittedly, so that's that makes sense. And this kind of um, created an atmosphere in the Weimar Republic among the middle classes that the government was favoring... um, the in, the working classes, the industrial classes, over the middle classes. They called it a, a, a like a form of class warfare to impose quote socialism by stealth, which is something that uh, a lot of our par- politicians on the on the right specifically um, you know like to say a lot. But this was like for realsies, socialism by stealth, um, and, uh, and 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 then the last kind of shitty part about being middle class in um, Weimar Republic was that. There was no major party that represented them. So, you know, people, the workers' classes, like, uh, th- they were represented by folks like the SDP or the Communist Party, the KDP, um, and, you know, the the folks on the right uh, were, you know, supported by the, the National Socialists. So when the these middle class people, you know, they're like, well, hey, we're getting a shit end of the stick, who's going to help us? You know who's going to help us fix our problems? They ended up turning to the National Socialists because the National Socialists were able to tap into this middle class resentment um, that you know that you know they're not getting a fair shake, and I think this kind of brings us to the overall question of why the the Weimar Republic, um, you know, ended and why um, why the Nazis were able to take power and. You know, a number of things, and you can look at it from a social and a political perspective, and you can look at it from an economic perspective, definitely want to talk about the economics, but first social stuff, you know, there, there were two real types of Weimar politics, there was this, you know, very limited, very pragmatic approach, uh, that was coming out of the center. Um, and then there was this radical change movement. Uh, and that was split between left and right, right. So there was two radical change movements. But generally speaking, we can kind of group them together. Um, so the, the, the parties that supported the Weimar Republic initially, you know, like the social Democrats or the democratic party or the center party, you know, they, they were promising things like higher wages, shorter working hours, lower taxes, better schools, so on and so forth, healthcare, you name it. Like these are the things that they were promising to do. But at the same time, the, the folks that were, you know, on the extreme left and right were promising the same thing they were promising the communists and the nazis were saying the same shit they're like oh we'll give you higher wages and shorter working hours and lower taxes and better schools and stuff like that you know so that sounds super appealing to a lot of people who were disillusioned by how things were going post world war 1 I. I mean think about it this way all of the political movements of the day were promising the same thing you know to to increase the standard of living for the people and you know the republic had a rough start right you know they they had this you know repute they had their reputation tarnished by a lot of things including hyperinflation inflation, abject poverty um, you know uh, uh, resentment towards reparations right so that that's where they the started loss of from. land Ex- the loss of land that's a great one right so that's the that's the place that the that the Weimar Republic started from so they had a tarnished reputation from the start and even though they were doing a really good job at turning that around they always had that black mark on their on their record. And so even though we were showing strength and stability in this golden age, it was it, it was propped up by foreign investments, right? Uh it wasn't it wasn't like uh, organic in that respect. And and you know, when the great depression hit, right, in the United States, well, shit, there goes all the money. <laughs> you know, they start recalling all that debt and, you know, basically the, the you know, the the repercussions of that was felt very strongly in the Weimar Republic as well. So there's this economic implosion that came as a result of your entire economy being propped up by the United States who themselves are having a hard time, you know. Um, so if you take all that together, normal people look, started looking at, like, these radical fringe politics, you know, and— they were kind of like interested. They were like, all right, well, let's let's do a change, right? These guys are all saying the same shit, but these other guys say that they can do the same thing and they're different, right? So they wanted to change it up. You know, after all, I mean, the, they tried a republic and it didn't work out so well, at least not in the beginning, right? And it And it didn't work out when the Great Depression hit and, you know, basically crumbled all of their gains. And so... You know, we already talked about how you know, the, you know, the Germans in general were crushing uh, the communists, right? And they didn't want a Bolshevik revolution in Germany. So they didn't really have the ability to kind of come up and take the power, because, even though they tried very hard. You know, there was a lot of forces that were keeping them at bay. But there were no forces, as I pointed out, or at least there were fewer forces, that were um, putting down the far right in Weimar Germany, as I mentioned before. You know, um, those those judges were not doling out the same punishments to right wing terrorists as they were to left wing terrorists, and there weren't institutionalized policies to put down communist revolutions in the same way that there there weren't like any, you know, let's put down Nazis. <laughs> you know policies. There just wasn't any of them, so it created a perfect storm of conditions by which, in you know, the Nazi Party and and by extension, of course, um, Adolf Hitler, to take power. And remember Article Forty Eight. I was talking about this before, and it was the you know uh, ability for the president to basically override. Uh, the Reichstag, the the parliament, and just, you know, issued decrees from the bully pulpit, so to speak, you know, Hitler had been bugging, um, and I'm forgetting his name right now, which sucks. There was uh, a, there was a president who was a former uh, military general, it was a conservative guy, but not not quite super far right. And he had been ignoring uh, the Nazi party and specifically Hitler, he had been asking like i want to be you know chancellor make me chancellor make me chancellor and eventually you know due to the political climate that i just just described in great detail eventually he's like all right fine fuck it you can be chancellor right a little while later that president dies and you know hitler was the chancellor so he also assumed the presidentship and then as soon as he did that he invoked article 48 and said all right fuck it we're now you know the third reich that's that's it and of story I guess you know if you find a bunch a bunch
2: of uh, embittered people who feel like they've been humiliated, you throw them a nice little uniform, and uh, kind of promise them not just uh, pride but dignity. It's a pretty appealing message for a lot of people,
1: right? I mean, it, it's it it is a they were conditions for um radicalism on both sides but as we described one side didn't have quite as many restrictions or limitations or even you know negative repercussions for wrongdoing as the other side so it was pretty easy frankly for them to take over you know so there was a a lot of huge mistakes that the weimar republic made but you know in context there was also a lot of really great things that they were doing too um it just didn't shake out the way that it, that they wanted it to, you know? Well, I'll say so.
2: <laughs> well, I'll say so. Um, yeah. Well, definitely, uh, I don't think any of it needed to happen. I don't think World War Two had to happen. Some people no. say it was inevitable. I think it definitely didn't have to happen um all right before we wrap this show up let's we need to talk about afghanistan i know this is kind of a huge like a really uh non-subtle segue but you know we were talking about afghanistan a couple of days ago about how the government in kabul is falling and i'm sure if you're listening this is being recorded on friday so who knows what the hell is going to happen by the time this episode is released but the last news report i checked the taliban have seized control of four more four more provincial capitals and cemented its control of the strategic south and right now In only eight days the Taliban took control of sixteen of Afghanistan's thirty four provinces and conquered eighteen of its provincial capitals. And this is a Afghan army force Afghan army forces has opened a door for the Taliban siege of Kabul, as the insurgents now firmly control the majority of Afghanistan cities and districts, including the strategically and culturally significant Kandahar. I'm reading this from the Long Wars Journal by the way, Mm. by Bill Ruggio. Um, With control of Ghazni and Logar provinces and an uptick in fighting in the east, the road to Kabul is now open. So um, they took Kandahar, which is the second biggest city and kind of like the historical capital of of the Pashtuns. Um, The U.S. is deploying troops, to help evacuate um, people who work in the U.S. embassy in Afghanistan. The country is collapsing quicker than we even anticipated. Yep. I think we gave it like... I mean, I thought it was going to be like 90 days, not 20 days. Yeah, like I thought it was going to be a few months. hmm But, and that's how, that's how fast... The Afghan government is crumbling. And I didn't even think they, I don't think they're, if they take Kabul, that will be something. Um, but right now they take the Taliban control about 65% of the country. That's a very low conservative estimate. Probably, probably much higher. Um, I feel like the U.S. would
1: intervene a little bit more if they went for Kabul but I don't think it's a question of if they take Kabul I think it's just a question of when Oof. Kabul's a big population center but if they take Kabul
2: you know there's a I mean, theory that they took
1: Kandahar you know
2: can't yeah but Kandahar it's more Pashtuns are there um, it's easier it's kind of it's, it's the historical
1: home of the Pashtuns um, no I, I feel that but you know it's not like they just open the doors and say, "Hey, come in." <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, there's a warlord in
2: um, who lives in Kabul named uh, Gulbuddin Hekmachar, who is a uh, God. This guy's been around forever. He's just—I think he's got to be in his eighties now, and um, he's a Pashtun warlord, but he's not Taliban. And he is in Kabul, and he used to be allied with the Taliban, but he switched sides to the Afghan. To the, to the Afghan government, but some theorize that he might be a Trojan horse. So he might call his mm. militiamen to do kind of like in a, what's the order in Star Wars? Order 67 or whatever. Exactly yeah, Order 67. Like you know, when they kill the Jedi, some do yeah. some shit like that. Um, that's, what's, that's, that's what's in Scott Horton's book. So I'm just repeating what he says, but um. Yeah, it's getting crazy right there. Wanted to bring that up before we concluded today's episode, just because uh, you know we did an episode on the fall of the Afghan government a couple of weeks ago. Um, before we wrap this one up, is there anything that you would like to add, Danny? Nope. I think we're good. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, If you want to support the show, uh, number one way to do that is to rate and review the podcast if you're listening on your Apple device. So rate and review the podcast if you are on Apple. Just go to the five-star, rate and review five-star. Very helpful for our growth. And then you can also support us on Patreon at BroHistory-Patreon. I guess that's it, right? Yeah. All right. That's all. All right. We will see you next week. Peace. Peace.